Um, let's spend a little bit of time talking about faith. Faith. Human beings, like we are creatures of faith. We are, we are creatures that are, we are spiritual in nature. Um, by and large, the vast, I mean, I mean, like overwhelming majority of people believe that there is more to this life than just this life. That, that, that there's something beyond the reality that we just experience. It's like there, there's something behind it. There's something behind the veil, right? There's something that's just, there's more than what we see. We're spiritual. We're, we're, we're people of faith. And, and nothing brings that to the surface and makes us recognize that or reminds us of that quite like tragedy. When something goes wrong, when something bad happens, all of a sudden things start to bubble up. And if you're someone who's like a, a sports fan or even on social media or either none of those things, there's a, there's a good chance you've probably heard about this. Uh, last week, there was a tragedy in the National Football League. Like a young man, 24-year-old kid by the name of Damar Hamlin had a cardiac arrest on Monday night football. Um, and he's thankfully doing better now and he's on the road to recovery. But the moment that happened, there's just this outpouring of people with thoughts and prayers. Praying for Damar. We believe in the power of prayer. And, and that wasn't just coming from people that are like people of faith or people who are, uh, you may know who's like a Christian or someone. It was coming from everywhere. People from every like walk of life, from every corner of the world, it seemed like. Um, even organizations, like NFL organizations tweeting, hey, we're praying for, uh, for Damar. And, and like that's an awesome thing. That's, that's a great thing. There was even um, like on live television, there's people like praying on NFL Live for, uh, for this guy. And that, that's an incredible thing, but it just reminds us that there's something more out there, right? That, like, that none of us, like we may live our lives like this life is all there is, but if we're really forced to confront it, we think that there's something more. Even um, people are incredibly spiritual, even uh, what would be considered like the most uh, or the least religious generation, um, that people, by and large, stereotypically would say, this generation, they're, they're not a generation of faith. That would be um, Gen Z. So do I, do I have any like middle schoolers or high schoolers in the room represent early college students? Um, so Gen Z is about the ages of 10 to 25, roughly. Um, and people would say, well, yeah, they're probably not really religious, so they're not people of faith. That's actually not true. They're, they may not be religious or people of faith in the, the typical sense, um, but a recent study actually said that um, this is the Gen Z is the most spiritually open generation. 61% believe that there's something more to this life than just this life, that there's a, a supernatural or a spiritual side to life. Now, they don't believe that there's any one necessarily system that fits them, but they know there's something there. Same generation um, in that study, 59% of them say they are more open to God today than they were prior to the pandemic. The, 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 after the pandemic and political unrest and racial unrest and economic turmoil and everything that's going, like something, there's something about that that's made at least that generation say, I'm more open to God today than, than I was before because there's something more to life. Which the crazy thing about that is the generation that you would think that would be the highest number for, like the boomers, feel like, hey, you know, boomers and you're, you're you know, Christians and people of faith. It's only 34% for boomers. But there's something like the human race is we are just spiritual by nature. There's something about us that, that we are tapped into this idea of faith, and even what's considered to be the least religious generation is still spiritual. But the question isn't, are we spiritual? The question isn't, do we have, like, are we people of faith? The question really is, does it actually make a difference? Like, yeah, we're spiritual. Yeah, we have faith. Yes, we believe some things. But does it, like, when the rubber meets the road in our lives, does it make a difference in my life? Does anything actually change because I'm a person of faith? Because while it seems like we're just as spiritual or sometimes more and more spiritual, it seems like in the reality of our day-to-day -day lives, it makes less and less of a difference. Like, I'm a person of faith, but you wouldn't necessarily know it um, if you were just to look at my life. And so the question is, how does that change? What flips that? 
What, what turns that on its head from going like I'm a spiritual person or a person of faith to actually it plays out and impacts, um, it impacts my life. Where not only do people believe there's more to life than just this life, but that belief affects everything about their lives. And maybe you've met someone like this. You ever bump up to get someone who's, who's got this faith and it's so real to them? And, and like there can be, they can be going through incredible difficulty or really terrible circumstances or pain or suffering or confusion or disappointment and uncertainty. And yet in the midst of that, they have like a confidence and a hope in God. And you're just like, what is that? Or maybe you've met someone who's just irrationally generous, right? Like, like do they just, they're the most generous person you've ever met and it's informed by their faith. In fact, they're so generous that by like the world around them would kind of look and go, wait, that's like, you are irresponsibly generous, okay? Don't you know you shouldn't give that much money away? Ever met someone like that? Ever, ever met someone who, who makes decisions about their family or, or their careers or major life choices? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit my job. I'm going to change careers. I'm going to move to this city. We're going to do something with our family. And they make those decisions based on, well, I just, my, my faith is informing this. And you look at them like, you're crazy. Like, how can, how can you do that? And on one hand, we kind of do look at people like that and think, you're a little bit crazy. But then there's something about them that also makes us go, yeah, but I want that. Like, that's, like there's something about that. It does seem a little crazy, but it's inspiring. And, and I think I, I want what, what they have. And what they have, people who have that kind of posture towards life, they don't have optimism. They don't simply have hope. They don't just believe some amazing things. What they have is amazing faith confidence in God that informs everything that they do. And so the question is, where does that come from and how do we get that? So we're going to be talking about over the next couple of weeks in our time together. How do we get that kind of, are you kidding me, confidence and faith in God? And so if you're someone that, uh, man, you're already like a, a Christian or a follower of Jesus, it's going to be a series about like, hey, how do you stay strong in that? How do you continue on? How do you keep fueling that? Or maybe you're here or you're watching and it's like, well, I used to be a person of faith and I've left, or I'm on my way out the door, I'm having a hard time believing. What we're going to talk about in this series, it may explain why, and it may explain and, and describe how you can rediscover or refuel that faith. So let's jump in, um, and, and I want to look at Jesus, because that's always a good place to start in church. If you follow Jesus throughout the Gospels, throughout his life, there are like consistently two things that amaze him, two things that, that Jesus sees in people that makes him go, Wow. And the first time we kind of see this is in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Um, so Matthew records this time when a, a centurion comes up to Jesus, um, and he's got a servant who is sick, and he wants Jesus to heal his servant. Now, a centurion is a, a Roman soldier, uh, but also not just a singular soldier, but a soldier who has soldiers underneath him. He, he's like a, a commander in the Roman army. And, and so this centurion comes to Jesus like, hey, my, my, my servant is sick. Now, the people who are around Jesus, his disciples and the, the general crowds, would not be a huge fan of the centurion. The centurion is a Roman. And to the Jewish people, the Romans, they're the enemies, right? Like, you're what's wrong with our world. You're what's wrong with our life. It's your oppression and your violence and, and all of these things. Uh, you're not some, God doesn't like you, you nasty Roman centurion, you. And so they would expect Jesus to be like, no, sorry, I can't help you. It stinks to be you, stinks to be your servant, moving on. Let me focus on the people that I care about. But Jesus is like, yeah, sure, I'll heal, heal your servant. Do you want me to, to come with you, to come to your house, and, and I, I can take care of this? And what the centurion says is, is fascinating because he actually says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. You just say the word and my servant will be healed. Like, you, don't, you don't have to come to my house. Like, you, you don't need to follow me. Like, just, just say the word. Just whatever, I mean, whatever the word is, healed, like stop it, like be, well, I don't know, whatever it is, sassafras, that's what I said in the volunteer service and I don't know why. But like, whatever the word is, Jesus, you just say it and my, my servant will be healed. You probably don't, you, Jesus, you don't even have to say a word, okay? It just, just works for the sentence. Just, 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 you can just do it from here. 
And what's interesting is the reason that the centurion gives for his confidence. He says, for I too am a man under authority. So the reason that the centurion has confidence and that Jesus could just say the word is because he understands something about authority. He says, I'm under authority, uh, meaning like I'm not the, the highest power, like there's somebody or something over me, and I have soldiers who are under my command or under my authority, and so I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another one, come, and he comes, and to my servant, hey, do this, and he does it. He's like, this is how authority works. But, but notice what he says. He says, I'm under authority, and I have soldiers under me. That he understood that this is how authority worked. His soldiers would listen to him, not because he was the final authority, but because he represented the Roman Empire to them. In his soldiers' eyes, like our commander, this centurion, he is Rome, right? He, he carries the weight and the authority and the power of Rome behind him, so we will do what he says. He's like, I get how this works. And so Jesus, I've been, you know, I've been watching you, I've been listening to you. It's clear that you represent, just like I represent the Roman Empire, you represent something bigger, someone bigger. You're, you're not just some guy. You're not just some guy that's teaching some cool things. You have some authority behind you. That, that, that you, you represent the one with ultimate authority, so much so that you can just say the word and, and you have the authority over sickness and death. You can just tell it to stop it and it will stop. So just say the word, Jesus. And this is something, when Jesus hears this, like I just imagine him just like lighting up because his response is fascinating. Hearing this, Jesus was amazed. And he said to those following him, truly I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. He, he's amazed, and then he says, I've not found anyone in Israel, keeping in mind that all the people who are around him and his disciples is who he's talking about. These are Jewish people. So basically, he's like, you, you guys, your faith has nothing like this centurion. And they're like, really? The centurion? It's like, yeah. Like, this faith amazes me. And what was amazing about the centurion's faith is he's able to put two and two together. He's able to connect the dots and go, I see who Jesus is. I recognize his identity. And because I recognize that, I'm going all in. I'm like, I'm based, I'm putting my hope and my faith and my trust and my confidence, like everything on Jesus because I, I think there's something to this Jesus guy. This amazes Jesus. And the second thing that he marvels at, that Jesus marvels at, is actually the opposite. It's the same kind of scenario, but it's the, the opposite end of the spectrum. And so uh, there's a time, and Mark records this, where um, Jesus is in his hometown and he's teaching and he, he, he heals a few people and the people like it at first, but then they, their, their opinion of Jesus starts to change and they're like, wait a minute, we know who this guy is. And, and so they say, isn't this the carpenter, right? Like Jesus' earthly dad, Joseph, he's just a carpenter. He's just a common person. He just worked with their hands like, oh, we know this Jesus. He's just a, he's just a common day laborer. He just builds stuff. Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? Like, wait, we know, we know who he is. We know his family, we know what he does, we saw him grow up, and they took offense at him. And so they're like, okay, you're, you're nothing, Jesus, you're nothing special because we know you. And in response to their kind of posture or their attitude towards him, we read that Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. And so there's two things that makes Jesus go, wow. It's either people's great faith or their lack of faith, and both of those are kind of rooted in um, his identity, right? The, the centurion says, I see you for who you really are, and so I'm going to have, like, actions that, that fall in line with that. And the, the people in his hometown are kind of like, yeah, we already know who you are, and so we're, we're, not, we're not going there, right? Great faith or lack of faith. And, and what Jesus, when he showed up, man, his, his agenda, his desire for his first century followers and also his 21st century followers, if you're a follower of Jesus today or considering Christianity, his desire for us is 
to be people of great faith, to have confidence in who he is, be characterized by our faith in him. Now, this is where things get a little bit iffy, though, because we, I think, in many cases have misunderstood or misapplied or misrepresented what the word faith, what it actually means. And the message of Jesus and Christianity can often be con- like contorted and misrepresented and misunderstood in this way because a lot of times we'll take faith to mean things that it's actually not. Sometimes we'll take faith to mean this idea of just like blind belief. Like just, just, like, kind of just like tune out the world, la, 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 I can't hear you, just close my eyes, I'm just going to blindly believe in Jesus. Faith, like, there's no evidence, there's no reason, there's no logic, nope, I'm just going to trust Jesus. You read the New Testament, you never see that anywhere. We're invited to use like, our minds, our hearts, our souls, reason, logic, and information, and then make an informed decision on, okay, do I trust this Jesus or not? We don't have to check our brains at the door. Faith isn't blind belief. But the other thing that faith isn't, that I think oftentimes we kind of, we use these words interchangeably, even though they're not, faith is not the same thing as hope. And faith is not the same thing as optimism. Sometimes we, we treat faith like it's just interchangeable with optimism. Like, I have faith that things are going to work out. You know, I just, I got faith that things aren't so good right now, but I have faith it's going to get better. I have faith that things are going to turn around with my job. I have faith that the relationship's going to turn around. I have faith that this year is going to be better. I just got faith. And you're like, but, but what is that? Faith in what? Now, see, that's not actually faith. That's optimism because faith always has an object attached to it. You have to have faith in something. Here, here's an example. Just curious, is there anybody in here who has never flown? Anybody, any hands? Of no, just a handful of people. Okay, or like that, that, that's good. So most of you, I saw that, says the pilot back there. Like, I've never been on a plane. I'm, I'm concerned now. <laughs> so I, I, I've actually only ever flown once, and it was pretty recent. It was in 2016. Uh, Pastor Paul and I, we went to Panama on a mission trip to, to work some coffee farms. And uh, I'd never been out of the country, never been on a plane. And I'm like, sure, let's go. This will be great. Let's go to a, another country with a bunch of strangers. What could possibly go wrong? It was awesome. Um, so, so if you haven't flown yet, you know, you can use your imagination. I was in that boat not that long ago. But when you get on a plane, when you board a flight, you're going somewhere for work, you're going for a vacation, you're going to visit family, you, you do not um, get on that plane just being hopeful or optimistic that you're going to arrive at your destination, okay? You're not just like, you know, I think it'll be fine, right? Like, that, that's not why, why you do. But we don't think about it this way. But the reason that you'll get on a plane is because you have faith. You have faith that human beings figured out how to fly. You have faith in the physics behind it. You have faith in the engineers that have designed the plane. You have faith in the people that built the plane and maintained the plane. You have faith in the the judgment, in the experience, in the expertise of the pilot. You have faith in all of those things. And so you go, okay, I'll get on the plane. Like, none of us are ever stepping board on a plane if all we have is optimism, okay? Like, if you are, you're crazy. Like, yeah, I think it'll be fine. It'll be fun. It'll be great. What could possibly go wrong? Like, none of us are doing that. So this is the difference between faith and optimism. Faith has an object attached to it, and the object can't simply be the outcome because that would be like saying, well, I have faith that we're going to arrive safely. Well, why? Because I have faith that we're going to arrive safely. Like, that's, that's just optimism. Faith has to have an object that it's tied to, and this is kind of where I want to push on some of you a little bit. Because I know, like, in conversations that we've had directly or, or things I've heard in passing or the way I see you kind of approach life and, uh, and the, the social media posts and all these different things, and, like, like I'm your pastor and I love you, so i gotta like got to push and, and step on some toes a little bit. Some of you are treating faith like it's optimism. Where it's just like, man, I've just got faith. It's like, it's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. We're basically, we'll boil our faith down to it's, it's positive affirmations and self-talk and looking on the bright side of life, and I'll sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on top of it. 
And listen, I think those things are fine. I think it's like I think positive affirmations and, and a positive outlook on life, that's better than a negative one, right? Like, but we can't make the mistake of saying, well, that's what my faith is. That's not what my faith is, because my faith has got to be attached to something. We hear things like, well, I got faith that it's going to work out. Well, okay, that's great, but based on what? I got faith that, you know, <laughs> this is um, this is the time of year when it happens, right? I've got faith that this is gonna be my year. And kind of the cynical side of me says, yeah, you've said that for the last five years, okay? Right? Like, it's like, I've got faith. I'm like, well, but, but wait, why? I think it's great for you to think, hey, this is going to be a year. I want to make some changes and things, things are going to get better. In fact, there's like a, there's a little meme or like inspirational quote. I've seen it on a video. I've seen it on a graphic that's gone around for the last several years. And it's really funny because each year, another year just gets tacked onto it. I'm like, I don't think it's working. But maybe, maybe you've seen this. That's like, 2020 changed me. 2021 broke me. 2022, open my eyes. 2023, I'm coming back stronger than ever. It's like, again, like that's, that's a good attitude to have, right? Like you, you should want to like have optimism and hope for the new year, but why? What grounds my life in that reality? What is the object of my faith? And, and here's what our culture will tell us. You need an object for your faith? You are the object of your faith. Trust yourself. Have confidence in yourself. Do it yourself. Pick yourself up. This, this is why, like, bestsellers every single year, like, the, the largest selling section of books is always the self-help section, like, bar none. It's always things in that category. And again, it's good to want to improve ourselves. But I've tried to make myself the object of my own faith. I'm sure you have as well. And I, more times than not, I think I end up letting myself down. I'm like, well, here we are again. And that is a crushing weight, by the way, to hear a message that says, you've got to do it. And you've got to figure it out. And you've got to pick yourself up. And you've got to have it all figured out. And you've got to hustle. And you've got to grind. And, and, and you, you, like, it's all, it's all riding on you. And if you can't make it work, it stinks to be you. You fail. And you're discarded off to the side. Like, it, it is a crushing weight. And here's one of the, one of the, the, the beautiful messages of, of the Christian faith. What Jesus comes along and says, you do need an object for your faith. But you don't need the pressure of feeling like you have to be the object of your own faith. I am here to be the object of your faith. I am here to be the thing that you, want, that you can trust in, that you can hold to, that you can cling to. You know, it's like, and I know this analogy breaks down on a certain level, right? But going back to the plane thing, it's like culture tells us, you know, if, if the plane, if the flight, okay, that's life then you have to gather all the materials, figure out how to build a plane yourself, figure out how to fly the plane yourself, and hopefully you don't crash and burn. You're like, I have no hope. But Jesus comes along and says, like, you can trust me. I'm like the flight. You can trust in the plane and the pilot. Now, you still have to like, plan the trip and buy the tickets and pack your bags and get on the plane, but you don't have the weight of hoping that you don't completely crash and burn. You can put your faith in me. So that, that was his message when he showed up in the first century. It's still his message today. Come trust me. Come follow me. Come put your confidence in me. And the reason he's able to do this, it's really fascinating. And, and he has this conversation with his disciples near the end um, of his time with them. And he says something that, that crystallizes this. He says something that's really actually shocking. And sometimes we just gloss over things like this. But to his first century Jewish disciples, this was like, what? Are you, are you kidding me? And so John chapter 14 um, it's part of what's called the farewell discourse. And so this is like Jesus' last night with his disciples, and he's teaching them all of these different things. He's about to be arrested and crucified. And so he's, he's kind of imparting all this wisdom and all this care and all this love. And, and he says this in John 14, verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. So like he, he's taught some really difficult things, and he knows that he's just a short time away from, from uh, being arrested, beaten, and crucified, and things are going to get really, really rough for the disciples. He's like, hey, don't be troubled. 
And then he gives them the reason why. Well, you, you believe in God. And this isn't like you believe that God exists. That's how, as modern people, we kind of take the idea of belief in God. We're like, we believe, believe that God is real. But this is a time in world history where everybody believed that there was a God. The question was, which God? Which God do you worship? And he's talking to these, these Jewish people. So they had a very particular God in mind that they worshiped, that they trusted. And that's the idea that this is carrying. It's trust. In fact, John actually makes up a word here. So like in the Greek at this point in time, like this word didn't exist. And after this, it does. He takes the Greek word for believe and a little preposition in, and he mashes them together to get this, what we have believe in. But really, it's the idea of trust in. It's the difference between believe that and trust in. So he's talking to these guys that, that them and their, their, all their ancestors have this history with God. Like, you know, we, we, you, you trust God, right? Like we've been, as the Jewish people, we've been through some incredibly difficult things and you've had to trust God through exile and through slavery and through like being conquered by nations and, and kind of always being like this little minority group of people. And the only thing that's got you through that is that you trusted in God. He was the foundation of your life. And so they're all going, yeah. Yeah, we, we believe in God. We trust God in that way. And then he says something. Again, like we're just like, well, of course Jesus said that. But to them, they'd be like, really? He says, you believe in God, believe also in me. Like in the, same, in the same way that you trust God, that your ancestors have trusted God, that we have all this history and all these stories of God delivering us, I want you to trust me in that very same way. Trust me. The way that you trust God. And here's why I'm inviting you to do that, because I came to reveal God to you. I am actually God in your midst. And if you want to know what God is like, you want to know what his heart is about, you want to know what his character is, watch me, follow me, listen to me. You believe in God, believe also in me, because Jesus came to reveal and came to give us the clearest picture of God that there is. You see, people in Jesus' day, and people now, actually, have a lot of wrong assumptions about who God is. And for some of you, maybe this is your story. This is why maybe you walked away from faith for a long time or you're considering checking out right now and it's just like, because there have just been some wrong assumptions about God based on something that happened in your upbringing or a bad church experience or, or, or pain that was given to you or caused um, by others that, that claim to wear the, the, the mantle of Jesus or something that you were taught. It's like we have these, all of these wrong assumptions and this has been true throughout history. This was true in Jesus' time as well. And so one of the things that Jesus does when he shows up is he shows up to clear away all of those false assumptions about who God is and to reveal the clearest picture of God that we'll ever get. And so he's constantly doing things that challenge uh, his disciples' understanding of God, right? So there, there's a time when uh, he heals a man who was born blind. And the disciples are like, well, who sinned, this guy or his parents, that he was born blind? And so their assumption is, well, the reason he's blind, the reason something bad, he must have done something wrong, and so God is punishing him. And Jesus is like, that's not, that's not how this works. That's not what God's like. Uh, there, there's another time where Jesus is teaching about loving um, their neighbors. And someone asks him, like, well, who's my neighbor? Because to them, like, well, we have to love our neighbors like the other Jewish people, right? Because we're God's favorites. He likes us the best. We're God's people. And Jesus flips it on its head and says, no, actually, a neighbor, everyone's your neighbor. Anyone who ever has a need that you can meet, that's your neighbor. Because God loves all of them. I'm like, What? There's a whole section of teaching in the Sermon on the Mount where it starts with this, this phrase, you have heard it said, but I say to you. In other words, you, you had an idea of faith or religion or, or, or God or how this whole thing was supposed to work, and let me clear that up for you. Let me give you the real meaning behind that. 
He, he comes along and, and he's like, let me give you the clearest picture of God that you will ever see. I want, I want you to trust God. I want you to trust in me. I want, you, I want to reveal to you a God who is trustworthy. And, and so Jesus, he presents himself as an invitation to trust God for who he actually is, not as we imagine him to be. He's like, I, I won't be, I'm, I'm going to invite you to trust me, but I want to make sure you actually know who I am because some of us have this imagination of who God is. And he's like, I'm not that. I'm not that thing that you think I am, that others have, the, uh, the other, that, that hurt, that pain that you carry with you that others did in my name. I'm not that thing. I'm not that stodgy, like, check your brain at the door. I'm not that. I'm not, like, I, here, like you want to know who God is, you look to the person of Jesus as you look at me, and then you can decide, do you want to trust me or not? It's still an invitation for you, but I want you to understand what the invitation is actually to and who this God actually is. If you want to know what God is like, you look to Jesus. You don't look to uh, you know, other Christians or what's been done in you know, the name of Christianity throughout the ages. You don't look to the church. And the, some of these things are important and they're nuanced and they're complex and there's good and there's bad, but Jesus is like, focus on me, eyes on me. We, we don't even look to, now this is gonna sound a little controversial, you don't wanna just look to who God is. I don't just look to like, I'm gonna look to the Bible to discover who God is, like a book, because we have to understand that the point of the book is revealing a person. Like the whole story, the whole thing finds its culmination in the person of Jesus. And so if you're trying to reignite a faith journey, or maybe for the first time, maybe this new year, you're like, I want to read my Bible. I don't recommend, unless you've got lots of experience reading the Bible, I don't recommend reading it like a normal book where you start on the first page and go to the end. You're like, I'm going to start with Genesis. It goes good for a while. And eventually I hit Leviticus. And I'm like, what the heck is this? Right? Like, don't, don't start with Genesis. Start with Jesus. Get this understanding of, wait, who is this whole thing about? Now maybe I can backtrack and understand some of the backstory in light of who Jesus is. If you want to start reading, I encourage you to pick one of the Gospels, one of the four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke. John would be a great place to start. We've been going through the Gospel of John as a church. We'll jump back into that after this series. And read that with this understanding. If I knew nothing else about, about God, nobody ever taught me anything, I'd never been to church, if this was the only picture of God I had, if I had a blank slate, what picture of God would I have by looking at Jesus? And start from there. And someone who understood this so, so well, possibly better than anyone else, was probably the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul stood in this unique place um, in history where he was, uh, he was a Roman citizen. He's also a Jewish Pharisee. So as a Roman citizen, like he's got one foot in, like he understands the pagan cultures and the Roman Empire and all that that's going on. But as a, as a Jewish Pharisee, he understands the law and the, the way the Jewish people related to God. And then Jesus comes along and is doing this new thing. He's saying, hey, come trust me. I'm revealing God to you. And so Paul kind of takes this idea and he summarizes it so well in a letter that he writes to the Colossians, so Christians who are living in the, the city of Colossae. In Colossians 2, he talks about, like, hey, there's all these traditions that we have. And he's talking about the, the Jewish traditions, but also the pagan cultures around them. And there's sacrifices that we make, and there's temples, and there's festivals, and there's meals, and there's all these things that we have. And he says of those things that they are a shadow of what was to come. Like everything that we've been doing, it's all, it's all just been a shadow. And, and, and like shadows are cool, and you can learn something about an object from the shadow. If you see a shadow, you can be like, I think, you know, I, I got the general idea of the shape of the thing, the size of the thing. Is it moving? Is it standing still? I can kind of tell like sometimes depth perception, how far away is it? Like you can learn some great things um, about an object from a shadow. But when the, the thing or the person that's making the shadow shows up, you go, oh, now I see it clearly. When the thing making the shadow shows up, you, you, the shadow doesn't really matter anymore and not because the shadow was wrong, but it was just incomplete. 
I, I, you don't see my shadow coming. You're like, oh, I think someone's walking towards me right now. And then I show up and you just continue to stare at my shadow. That would be weird, okay? I'm like, hello, <laughs> here I am. And so Paul's like, hey, all these things, the festivals and the religious practices and the rituals, it was a shadow. The substance is Christ. The reality is Christ. The true thing is Christ. The, like the, the thing behind the thing that we've all been reaching for and, and looking for and trying to feel out, like Jesus had showed up and said, here it is. This is the clearest picture of God that you'll ever get. He shows up as the perfect representation of God to say, I'm here to show you what God is like, not so you'll just know more about God, but so that you'll trust him, so that you'll trust him, so you'll have a relationship with him. This is why there is such an emphasis by Jesus on trust or faith or confidence because every healthy relationship is built on trust. Every healthy, like every thriving, healthy, doesn't matter if it's a work relationship, a family relationship, whatever, like every healthy relationship, friendships, they're built on trust. Not obedience, not fear, not guilt or shame. Now, relationships can survive for a little while on those things, but they won't be healthy. They'll be dysfunctional, and eventually they'll fall apart. But relationships that are built on trust are beautiful, are healthy, are good, so Jesus invites people, hey, come trust me, because I want you to have an incredible relationship with God. In fact, when humanity went off the rails in the garden in Genesis 3, when sin entered into the world, what was the thing that was broken? It was the trust. Humanity goes, no, God, we don't, we don't trust you. We don't trust your way for our lives. And sin enters, and it's broken, and so it's no surprise that when Jesus shows up, he's like, I'm, I'm, I'm here to restore the relationship that was broken, and to do that, we're going to have to restore the trust. I want you to come and trust me, to have faith in me. And here's what you'll discover. As you read through the Gospels, as you, you know, talk to people who have great faith or study people who've had great faith throughout history or even uh, what you've discovered in your own life, moments where you've been really close to God, is that, that God is most honored, not simply by our knowledge of him. Knowledge is cool. I love learning stuff. Not simply by our obedience. I mean, obedience is good. You should do the right thing. But God is most honored, and the thing that he is after is our trust, our confidence in him. By our, like, it's, my, it's an active, in spite of, are you kidding me kind of faith, where everything may be falling apart, but God, my faith, my hope, my confidence, my trust in you is not shaken. Like, that's what he's after. That's what he wants. And, and that, that's actually, that's what having a relationship is about. And that's actually how, like, maturity as a Christian is measured. If you're, like, a follower of Jesus, like, how do I grow? How do I mature? How do I know if I'm more mature now than I was before? I think the church has made a mistake for a really long time at tying maturity to knowledge. And I, again, I think knowledge is great. But I can know a whole bunch of stuff and still not actually trust. And so it's this idea of coming to a place where everything about our life, whether it's a decision I have to make or an uncertain circumstance or just trying to go about my day-to-day -day where I meet everything with this lens and this filter, what would I do? How would I live? How would I think? What would I decide if I was absolutely confident that God was with me, that he loved me, that he had my best interest in mind? As I approach thinking, I gotta make a decision about this relationship, what would I do? If I knew God was with me and he loved me and he had my best in mind. Or there's this thing going on with my kids. What would I do if I, I was confident God was with me, that he loved me, that, that he had my best in mind? What would I do with this career decision? What, whatever it is, what would I do if I was absolutely sure that I could trust God, that I was confident that he was with me, that he loved me, that he had my best in mind? When we see people living that way, it's inspiring. 
when you've experienced for your own, that in your own life in different seasons, you're like, this is, this is great. I feel like this is what my life is supposed to be. This is awesome. But how we get that kind of faith is what the series is about. How do we step into that? How do we live that way? How do we maintain that? But I wanted to start here today with what we were talking about because we can't grow our faith, mature in faith, or fuel our faith, or rediscover faith. We can't do any of that until we first answer the question, well, faith in what? Or faith in who? It starts with Jesus as the perfect image of who God is inviting us, come trust me. Come trust me. So we're going to do that over the next uh, couple of weeks. We're going to talk about the things that grow or deepen or mature our faith. Um, kind of interestingly, if you have been with Hope Community for the long haul, if you're an, an OG Hope Community-er, a better name than that, um, we actually talked about this in our very first year as a church, um, way back in 2017. So for those of you who don't know, today's our birthday. Hey, January 8, 2017. We're six years old today. Kindergarten, first grade, whatever, depending on when we started school. So that's a fun age as a church, isn't it? Um, but yeah, we, you know, we talk about this, and it's like, it's just time to revisit this. What are the things that, that grow our faith? Uh, we think that there are at least five. Maybe you can come up with more, but there's at least a minimum of five. And these are things that in my own life I've experienced, like, this is what draws me closer to God. Many of you have as well. And when you open up the pages of Scripture, you see these things coming up over and over. And the, the cool thing is that faith looks different in different seasons. Um, you know, your faith's going to look different as when you're in like grade school to middle school to high school to college. So when you're a young adult, when you're single, when you're married, when you're uh, you know, having like little kids, struggling to have kids, empty nests, like all along the way, like faith looks different. But these things kind of remain as the things that anchor you and grow that faith. So we're going to be having that conversation over the next couple of weeks. Next week, we're going to dive into the first one. Um, but for today, and the thing I want you to kind of think about and mull over uh, this next week as we uh, kind of get out of here and we'll come back and, and continue the conversation, the thing I want you to think about is who or what is my faith in? Is it in Jesus? Is it in something else? And why? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much. Um, that we can trust you, that the invitation is to just come trust you, to place our faith in you, to place our confidence in you. We thank you for that. Um, we thank you that you are a God who's proven yourself over and over and over again to be trustworthy. And we thank you that we don't have to guess or we don't have to wonder of that. And, and the best picture that we have of that is, is your son, Jesus, uh, that he walked this earth to reveal who you are, died on a cross for our sins and rose from the dead. And so, Lord, I pray that all of our hope, all of our trust, all of our faith, all of our confidence would be in him. And I pray that through the power of your spirit, you would make us people of great faith. Maybe that looks like today taking the first step on a faith-based uh, journey, a relationship with you. Maybe that looks like a new commitment. Maybe that looks like just staying strong with it. But God, may you increase our faith today and in the year to come. We pray this in Jesus' name.